I'm not a social man, and I have had a few friends in my life. Sal, the bartender at my favorite pub, was one of the select few in my inner circle. I know what you're thinking. He's a bartender. He has to be friendly to get a good tip. But you're wrong. It goes beyond that. I'd known Sal for over 25 years and sat across him at the bar almost every day since we met. When I got married, Sal was my best man. When my wife threw me out, it's at Sal's home that I stayed. When she took full custody of my daughter, it was Sal who consoled me. He was a good friend. Always willing to listen to me and give me advice like any bartender would. Unlike the other tenders, however. Unlike the other bartenders. However, Sal actually cared. Now, Sal was a very private man with a rather quiet demeanor. That said, on the few occasions where he chose to let loose, he talked a lot. Sal had a way of capturing the attention of everyone in the room. This might sound a bit cliched, but he'd regale us with stories of his youth. He told us about his cross-country trips, his overseas adventures, his mishaps, and his entertaining anecdotes. When he spoke, his audience sat on the edge of their seats, hanging on to every word as he gave them the juicy details of his endless tales. He was old now, and couldn't travel quite as often. He didn't seem to mind. He always had a smile on his face and a cheerful attitude that brightened the mood of everyone he came across. One evening, I was enjoying a drink. I noticed a man in a booth staring at Sal from across the room. At my angle, I could barely make out his short, spiky, raven hair. I pointed him out to Sal, and he told me he'd been coming in every night that week, never ordering anything. Sal, being the big softy that he was, couldn't bring himself to kick the guy out. Considering I went to the pub every night, I was surprised I hadn't seen the stranger until that evening. I was probably too drunk to notice. Later that night, after drinking one too many drinks, as I tended to do all too often, according to my ex-wife, I passed out across a row of chairs. Sal trusted me enough to leave me there, even after closing time. I woke up long before dawn and made my way through the dimly lit bar to the back door, which can only be opened from the inside. This wasn't my first time taking a snooze alone in the bar, so I knew my way around well not to run into any of the tables on my way out. As I opened the door to the back alley, I heard what sounded like applause, but it turned out to be the sound of three dozen crows taking flight. They hovered above the cold alleyway for a few moments, and then landed on and around the leaky dumpster in the front. I jumped when I saw the damned birds. I'm not afraid of crows, mind you. I even feed the ones at work during lunch. They startled me as all. A hunter's moon peeked through the clouds and illuminated the scene. There was someone standing on the other side of the dumpster in the forest of crows. It was the man I'd seen earlier that night. He had his back turned to me, wearing a black trench coat and boots laced with multiple buckles. There was a large crow perched on his shoulder. Something was odd about his back. A bulky mass moved under his coat, causing it to shift around like curtains in the breeze. The dumpster smelled particularly putrid tonight, I thought. 
I glanced at the stranger who stood between me and the street. I moved toward him and saw that his crow was chewing on something. At first, I thought it was a gummy worm, but as I approached, I realized it was much darker and oozed a crimson blood onto the cold, wet pavement. And then I saw Sal. He lay on the ground, his body ripped open, serving as a buffet for the hungry crows to feast on. They pecked at his innards, taking turns chewing on his softer organs. I could hear the crunching sounds as they broke apart his bones with their abnormally strong beaks. Bringing a hand to my mouth, I emitted an audible gasp. The sound caught the stranger's attention, and he slowly turned to face me. His golden, serpentine eyes reminded me of headlights. Something in his left hand gleamed in the moonlight. It was a short, silver dagger. The edge covered in liquid that belonged to my friend's veins. I should have been terrified. Angry, sad, but I felt... strangely calm. My eyes were transfixed on the surreal scene and the man at the center of them. And though he held a weapon, and though he had used that weapon to murder my friend, I didn't feel as though I was in any danger. The man gave me the quiet smile of a Grecian statue, projecting calmness despite the feeding frenzy at his feet. His footsteps echoed down the narrow hallway as he made his way toward me. My heart thumped hard in my chest. Paralyzed with fear or disbelief, I watched him outstretch the hand to my face. The gentle elegance seldom attributed to the male gender. The crow on his shoulder tilted its head as its master scraped his long black nails against my cheek. I felt a faint, stinging sensation, no worse than that of a paper cut. The man gave me an amused hum as he brought his fingers to his mouth and tasted a few drops of my blood. not sure how long it took me to snap out of the shock, but when I finally did, I looked towards Sal's final resting place and saw that there was nothing left of my old friend, not even a drop of blood. The stranger turned his back to me, and a sudden flood of adrenaline compelled me to grab a wooden plank from the floor. I threw myself towards the man, but stopped all of a sudden when his trench coat slid off. Two massive Black wings clutched on his back like climbing vines. Black veins led to and from the appendages, which flared out with a sound similar to that of an unfurling sail. The man gave me one final look and spoke to me in a deep, booming voice. You'll thank me one day, he said. With that, the crows took flight and the man disappeared. I was left alone in the alleyway as the sun rose. No evidence of the man, his crows or my dead friend. I tried going to the cops, but what would I tell them? I sat in front of the police station going over the facts in my mind. They'd never believe that some sort of crow demon and his army of minions ate Sal. I ultimately chose inaction, hoping I'd merely suffered a booze-induced nightmare. It was no nightmare. 
Sal was reported missing by the pub's owner a few days later. An investigation began, and what the police uncovered shocked even me, who had seen a guy getting eaten by a flock of crows. They found evidence linking Sal to no less than 15 cases of missing children. He'd kept trophies of their remains hidden in a safe under his bed. And then it hit me. The reason for Sal's frequent trips in his youth. He'd been doing the wretched deed far from home so he wouldn't get caught. This may sound weird, but I'm still grateful for Sal's friendship. As I explained earlier, I'm not a very social man. When you get to be over 20, it becomes a lot harder to meet people outside of work, and the friends you do have tend to drift away. Sal helped me through tough times, and I will always be thankful for his friendship. I still mourn him, not the bad parts. I, I mourn the loss of the man I thought he was. It may seem strange to you, but that's how I feel. These days I've stopped drinking. I haven't set foot in that pub since the day Sal died. My ex and I even got back together. I get to see my kid every day, and that's the greatest gift of all. I guess in a way, losing Sal was one of the best things that ever happened to me. On my way home from work yesterday, I saw a crow with familiar snake eyes gleaming like headlights. He gave me a knowing nod, and I knew we understood one another. Among the horrific things found in Sal's home, they had retrieved a fully packed duffel bag, a single one-way ticket to Mexico for the day after he was killed, and hundreds of photos of my wife and daughter. The crow man saved them, and that... My friends, is why I smiled at that crow and uttered two simple words. Thank you. I work at what was once called a computer repair shop, though the owners changed the branding to tech repair shop a few years back when they started seeing more phones and tablets than actual desktops. It's not bad work overall. About half the problems are really simple fixes. Rebooting the device, getting rid of some buggy software or app, that kind of thing. The other half we give to Melissa to figure out, as she'd forgotten more than I'd learned in the last two years I've been working there. Occasionally we get people coming in with lost and found type stuff. Computers or phones that someone left behind or lost. People come in, sign a form saying they've made a diligent effort to find the original owner without success, and then we wipe the device for them when we can. What we don't tell them beforehand is that we usually check the devices before wiping them. I'm not trying to be nosy or anything, but our boss also doesn't want the reputation of laundering stolen phones or damaging property without the owner's permission. Sometimes we're able to find a way of reaching the owner. If we do, we return the phone to whoever brought it in and tell them the info we found. After that, it's on them to do the right thing. Other times, the device's owner isn't as easy to figure out, and usually these do get wiped and restored. Unless, of course, we find something else strange on it. It doesn't happen often. Once Melissa found a computer with some bad shit and she reported it to the cops, but that was before my time. And while I'd seen odd stuff from time to time, there was nothing that had ever really bothered or freaked me out. 
But three weeks ago, I came into work to find a phone wanting to be cleaned. The paperwork was signed by Vince Teller. He was a regular. His cleaning company covered the rest stop and park bathrooms for 50 miles up and down the interstate. And over time, I was becoming convinced he was making more money from selling second-hand smartphones than scrubbing toilets. Still, he wasn't a thief, so far as I knew, and when I tapped on the glass, the home screen came into view. No pin or anything. Easy peasy. I did a cursory glance through the phone, but it was either very new or it had already been partially white. No contacts, no email setup, no owner info. To be fair, it was in great shape other than a thin scratch on one corner of the screen. I was getting ready to do a factory reset when I saw a little icon in the app drawer I didn't recognize. It was just a red eye. No name or anything. Browning, I touched the eye. The screen went black and then a video began to play. It was in a house, or what looked like a house at least, though it could have been a set or something as the angle never changed much. The room looked like a study with big bookshelves along the far wall filled with leather books behind a huge leather sofa that covered the back half of a thick woven rug. The image quality and lighting was very clear and I found myself wondering if this was the pre-rendered video opening to a game or... And that's when they dragged the woman into view. I never saw her face. Her head was covered by a black sack the entire time, and even in the end, it never came off. The rest of her was naked. I felt myself blushing as I stared at the screen. Was this some kind of fetish porn video? But no, it was nothing like that. Her captors, her murderers, were two men wearing masks and hooded sweatshirts. They brutalized her in about every way imaginable for ten minutes before one of them stood up and began stomping in her head. I was on the verge of tears by then. There was no sound that I could make out, but the, the video was enough. This wasn't staged or faked. I just watched them murder some poor girl. My hands shaking, I carried the phone back to where Melissa was replacing a hard drive and a laptop. When she first looked up, she seemed irritated, but her expression became worried when she saw my face. Paul, what is it? I handed her the phone wordlessly. It had reverted to the app drawer after the video was gone, so I pointed at the red eye and told her to hit it and watch. Tell me if she thought what I did. Her face paled as she watched the video, and when she was done, she rewound it and played parts a couple more times. Finally, she looked up at me, her expression serious. I, I, I don't know. It could be real, sure, but it could also be fake. I frowned. How could someone fake that? That's not CGI or something. That was a real person. Melissa shrugged, her voice soft. Yeah, I, I know. But look. You kids are so used to computer special effects and stuff that it's easy to forget how much more realistic stuff looks when it's real. She rolled her eyes slightly. Not like real real, I mean using practical effects. Like they used to do in movies and stuff. I'm no expert, but the fact that her face is always covered is suspicious. And you notice by the time they... Uh, 
By the time they stomp her head, she's not moving at all. Now, that could be them stomping a real person, or it could be a clever edit where they swapped it out with a dummy. She replayed part of the video. See? They've zoomed in for that part. You can barely even see her skin anymore when they started stomping. Mainly, it's the black bag and the boot coming down. That's not hard to fake if they want it. I nodded. Okay, I can see that, maybe. Despite myself, I felt the first flutters of hopeful relief. I didn't want it to be real, and I was willing to take any other halfway reasonable explanation. Anything else that stands out to you? Well, the finger in the sofa, I guess. I felt my eyes widen. The what? Melissa raised an eyebrow at me. You didn't notice? It was pretty obvious in the middle of the video. She scrubbed backward, then hit play. See? To the right, where they've got the girl, coming on the back of the sofa. She was right. It was small, but very clear once I saw it. A long, thin finger poking out the back of the sofa. As I watched, it stretched and scratched at the back seat cushion below, as though trying to find enough purchase to pull out its owner free from whatever held them inside the furniture. I could even make out the tip of the finger and nails, swollen and black like the finger had been caught in something or hammered. I looked back up at her. How does that mean it's fake? She shrugged. I mean, it doesn't necessarily, but doesn't it seem a bit staged? Like the cameraman wants to get the finger in the shot? Frowning, she didn't look entirely convinced herself. Look, who brought this? It was here this morning. Got dropped off by the Toilet King. Melissa grimaced. <sighs> Fucking skis. She sat the phone back down with a distasteful look. But maybe it's like a little horror video. Got left in a rest stop for someone to find. Did it have a lock on it? I shook my head. No, it opened right up. She looked a little relieved. Well, there you go. Probably someone trying to make a video go viral or become an urban legend or some dumb shit. When I didn't respond, she let out a sigh and nodded. <sighs> but I get why it bothers you. It does me too. I'll tell you what. Give me some time to fiddle with it and see what I can figure out. If we aren't satisfied it's fake after that, we'll go to the cops. Does that sound fair? I nodded. Yeah. Fair. I was going to check on it later that day, but I didn't want to bug Melissa when I knew she was working on the other stuff. The next day I was off, and I resolved to check with her that following morning, but that's when Kiera came to the store. We hit it off immediately. She'd just moved to town and was looking for a good used laptop. We didn't sell many computers, used or otherwise, but I tried to keep the conversation going while technically telling her we didn't have what she was looking for. I kept expecting her to bail, but after a half hour of chatting, we'd made a date for the next night. I was grinning when she left the store, but my smile faltered when I turned around to find Melissa smirking at me. <laughs> okay, Romeo. If you're done making your social plans for the week, come look at what I found on your mystery phone. My face grew hot as I followed her back. 
partially because she'd caught me flirting at work, and part because I really had forgotten about the phone as soon as Kiari had walked in. Stomach tightening, I sat down at the work table with Melissa. The phone was there, but instead of opening it, she pointed at her laptop. Okay, so I pulled some stuff off of it. First, I looked for any kind of information about the video itself or the app. It's pretty blank. Uh, oddly blank. Whoever set it up knew what they were doing, and I can't find a version of the app anywhere on the internet. But either intentionally or not, though I'd guess it was intentional, they did leave the video file exposed enough for me to get information on it. She clicked on a folder and pulled up a long string of code I didn't understand. Gesturing at the screen, she went on. So this is part of a digital watermark associated with the file, and there's a few things interesting about it. First, this format of digital watermark is designed primarily for streaming videos, and it's pretty advanced stuff. I leaned in. So, like, this video was streaming when we watched it? Like it was live? She shook her head. No, not live or actively streaming. It's saved in the phone's memory. But I think it's a cache, and the first time the video was played on the phone, it was probably streamed. Doesn't mean it was live then either, but I definitely think it was streamed the first time. Okay. Uh, does that matter? Melissa pursed her lips. Maybe? Maybe not? But it stood out to me when I looked at the watermark more. Some of this information, it's got spots to tag an owner, a location, that kind of thing. It's meant to help prevent copyright infringement, after all. But all of that's blank. The only field that's being used is the timestamp, which, as far as I can tell, is showing when it was first streamed, and that's where it gets weird. She was dragging this out on purpose, and I had to try and hide my irritation as I played along. Weird how? Well, the stamp shows a date and time that's three weeks from now. Like, the video was streamed for the first time on this phone three weeks in the future at, uh, 8.49 p.m. I shrugged. <laughs> I mean, that stuff can be faked pretty easily. Frowning, she closed that window. Faked? Yes, easily... Not with this kind of stuff. It's all encrypted. It took me a couple of hours to get what I got, and even then I just managed to extract some surface metadata that isn't even really protected. I wouldn't begin to know how to change that data, though. She let out a laugh. Not that there aren't some that could. Anything can be hacked, after all. She shot me a sidelong glance, pausing for a moment before going on. Besides, I also found this. Clicking on another file, she pulled up what looked like a screenshot of... What was this? It's a cast list. Melissa burst out laughing. You see? She has some weird torture porn bullshit. Girl victim. Killer one. Killer two. They even have a man in couch. Played by Stuart Greenfield, if you wanted to check out what else he's in. I puffed out a breath and glared at her. <sighs> Shit. You could have just told me that. All that dramatic build-up. Melissa chuckled. 
I could have, but it wouldn't have been nearly as fun. And I spent most of yesterday messing with it to find that out. I thought about calling you, but I decided that this was funnier. Shaking my head, I stood up. So all the rest of that was made up. She met my gaze, her smile faltering. No, everything I said was true. And whoever cracked that watermark to make it say three weeks from now, they know what they're doing. They should be working and making bank as a computing consultant, not <laughs> dropping off weird videos at a rest stop. I could say the same thing about you. <laughs> Why are you still here after all this time? She shrugged. Nah, low pressure, low stakes. I don't need much money. She broke into another grin. Plus, I get to torture the noobs from time to time. Grimacing, I headed for the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, congratulations, you got me. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll be going to daydream about my hot date. I went out with Kiera that next night and a few nights after. Over the last few days, we've been spending more and more time together, and we've been talking about a trip this weekend. So when she called me tonight and I was closing up the store, at first I was happy and excited. And then I heard that she was crying. What's wrong? Did something happen? I got a new phone today, right? But I got it at lunch, so I waited to take it out and set it up when I got home tonight. And Right, anyway, so as soon as I get it out of the box, I drop it. It only has a little scratch on the screen, so no big deal, right? But I... I'm worried now. I turn it on, want to make sure everything's working okay. It doesn't go through the normal phone startup stuff, which I thought was weird, but my main thing is I'm trying to make sure it's not jacked up. So I try a couple of different apps. I froze halfway across the parking lot to my car. Uh, yeah. Did it mess up? No, I, I just... I clicked on this one app. It was just like an eye. I thought maybe it was a camera or something, but instead it played a video. It was a video of this girl being tortured and... Fuck, Paul, I think they killed her. I started walking again. Oh, um... It's... It's a fake. I had that on a phone at work a few... My tongue started growing fat in my mouth. Did you say you scratched your screen? Yeah. It's a fake, really? Because it looked... Where? Uh, where on your screen is it scratched? Uh, I guess lower right side? It's, it's not a big deal. Paul, are you sure it... Her voice became distant as I pulled the phone away from my ear and looked up at the time. 9.04 p.m. Hands shaking, I tried to unlock my car door as I brought my phone back up. Kira, listen to me. Lock your doors, go into your bedroom and lock that too. I'll be over in just a few minutes, and I'll call before I knock, but if you hear anyone else, you call 911, okay? Paul, if it's a fake, then why? Please. I'll explain when I get there. Just stay safe until I do, okay? Okay. Just, I'll see you in a minute. Hanging up, I put my phone away and used my other hand to steady the key enough to get it in and unlock my new car. 
As I started to open the door, I fumbled the keys again, this time enough to drop them into the dark below. Cursing, I braced myself against the car with my right hand as I leaned down to get my keys with my left. As I bent down, I bumped the door over the top of my head, heard a short metallic squeal as the door began to close again, and then my head exploded with pain as the door closed on my hand. Grunting, I yanked the door open and pulled my hand free. The door had scraped the tips of my other finger, but my index finger had been caught up in the first joint and smashed hard enough that hot and cold waves of pain pulsed down my arm with the beating of my heart. Trembling, I held my hand up so I could see my finger better in the dim, sodium light of the parking lot. I let out a small sob at what I saw. My long, thin finger, the tip and nail already darkening as they filled with blood. In many communities, urban legends are a rite of passage. Most of us have grown up with some form of tall tale, whether it was something as ridiculous as growing watermelon in your stomach because you ate the seeds or downright terrifying like being taken by a demonic woman because you said her name three times in a mirror. Though they may not have much in common on the surface, their significance goes beyond the tales themselves. Urban legends provide children with their first real test of critical thinking. Even if every kid in your class is adamant that some miraculous claim is valid, you're never too sure. In your growing curiosity, you ask questions, do research, and piece together information from your own understanding of the world. To us adults, it may seem insignificant to determine that a watermelon actually won't grow in your stomach or that Slender Man didn't actually steal the kid who's been out sick. But in reality, the process of logical thinking and finding the truth with verifiable evidence that becomes so valuable later on in life. And it's for these exact reasons that the tale of the earwig strikes a deep-seated dread into every person living in my town. The earwig is a creature born of collective fear, as the story goes. A human-sized bug that waits in the darkness, fixing its body onto the thinnest corner so it can observe you from afar. Long antennas sense the slightest movement. Quick legs and a flexible body allow it to squeeze into every nook and cranny to evade your eye. Unsure of your surroundings, you search, but to no avail. Only when you think you've checked every corner possible, do you reluctantly accept that you're alone. Little do you know, that the moment you've let your guard down is the moment it glides silently toward you to inject a paralyzing neurotoxin into your neck. The debilitating pain is unbearable, and you thrash around in a desperate attempt to fight back, but a tough exoskeleton protects it from anything you could hope would hurt it. As your body begins to tire, as your muscles start to seize, fleshy tentacles emerge from an undulating thorax and shoot a sticky material to hold you in place. At the same time, a flexible proboscis pierces your abdomen. It excretes a substance to turn your insides into soup and happily slurps it up. Once it's had its fill, a second appendage quickly injects thousands of magnets into what will now serve as a petrified cocoon. 
Horrifying behavior aside, the story for the earwig isn't simply one of a formidable predator. It's one of a creature who, by some unknown means, has conquered the very concept of uncertainty itself. What happens when a being finds a way to always potentially exist? Not just when you finally decide to open your eyes and turn around, but under your bed, in your closet, in every dark place you never thought to check. Until you know for a fact that something is or isn't there. The answer to what fills that space is unknown. And in that uncertainty, the earwig finds a home. The more people think about the possibility of its existence, the more it has a chance to find its way into our reality. At first, the kids couldn't possibly understand the ramifications of the tale. For them, it was just a stupid thing they'd say to scare each other. Don't think about the earwig or it'll already be too late, they would say. When one was mad at a classmate or a teacher, they'd shout the name three times or draw them a picture of it to make sure that the target of their ire kept the beast in mind. Others would play the long game, finding a victim and making mention of the earwig to them every single day. For most, it was supposed to be harmless kid fun, a dumb myth like any other. As they grew older, they'd forget and laugh when their friends brought it up as adults. But one day, the laughs stopped. When a girl was found dead in her room, her body had seemingly petrified overnight and what looked like maggots were crawling in and out of her nose. Nobody could figure out what led to her death. Had she simply stopped breathing? An abnormal medical condition, perhaps? There were no signs of foul play, just a few marks that looked like she'd been stuck by a hypodermic needle. But there was no break-in, and the parents surely didn't harm her, so what had led to that tragedy? Sad and confused, the town children did their best to cope with the event. At first, there was genuine mourning for the girl, but in a short amount of time, they attached her death to the only thing that made sense in their undeveloped minds. Soon, the earwig had become synonymous with taking the young girl's life. In the minds of the children, she was the first official kill. Almost as if the universe wanted to confirm their suspicions, soon after another person was found dead. This time, a grown man, a teacher who, in all fairness, was hated by much of his class. Like the girl, his body was found petrified with maggots crawling out of every single orifice. Needle marks were found on his neck, and some unidentifiable mucus-like substance stuck him to the bed. But unlike the girl, he had a more direct connection to the creature. Drawings of what appeared to be an imposing bug filled his mailbox. Papers he was grading had earwig written all over it with more crude pictures of a similar-looking beast drawn on the back. While the local police couldn't take this as any more than coincidence, and while none of the kids involved faced punishment, it certainly raised the eyebrows of the townsfolk. All the while... Word of the earwig was growing from urban legend to something that people truly began to fear. 
As time went on, more deaths came in the exact same manner. Never an overwhelming amount, but a concerning number nonetheless. While some seemed completely normal, unrelated to the creature, most undeniably had some sort of connection to it. It ultimately reached the point where even the most hardcore skeptics wouldn't dare say its name for fear of bringing a plague upon someone else's home, or worse, their own. A young boy played out in his front yard on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Two neighborhood kids the same age were walking by and stopped to talk with him for a second. A quick exchange of pocket cash was made, and the young boy disappeared into his house and then soon reemerged with a piece of chalk. He casually walked over to the sidewalk and began to draw something as the two boys stood over him and giggled. He didn't even finish half the word before his father came rushing out of the house like it was on fire. The man scooped up his son with one arm and punt kicking the fallen piece of chalk across the street. Mr. Ned, as the kids called him, was one of the calmest individuals in town. A delightfully happy religious man who never raised his voice, even now, was beat red. He screamed at the two neighborhood boys to get the hell away from his house before turning his attention to his son and yelled, You will never fucking do that again. Do you understand me? He'd been shouting with so much force that others couldn't help but peek out their windows to see what the commotion was. One woman even stepped out to inquire about what was going on. Mr. Ned met her confused gaze with a snarl. With nearly the same level of force he had spoken to his son with, he screamed at her to go inside before marching back into his home with a vice grip on his son's arm. From that day forward, that young boy wasn't allowed out of his house for anything except school until he was ready to leave for college. Supposedly, the two boys who had thought it would be funny to pay the kids to draw the creature's name in public met an even harsher punishment at home. Quickly, word of the earwig wasn't that of legend to the townspeople. They were fact. Just as the sun rose in the sky, so did too the earwig descend in the dark. For them, talk of anything even resembling the creature was taboo, and any slip-ups were met with zero tolerance and swift retribution. There were even instances of police coming to arrest people they heard were spreading the creature's name. False charges were quickly applied, and people were more than willing to lie in court to shut someone up for good. Though it may seem like a mighty overreaction from the outside, it's important to remember what fear does to people, especially when that fear had been justified by years of evidence. When your life and the lives of your loved ones are put in danger because of mere thoughts, it would seem appropriate that people go to the extreme measures to prevent those thoughts from ever forming. And when the earwig was off of the minds of the people, life was good. The hope was that, like all things not acknowledged, the legend would fade into irrelevance, and eventually non-existence. But scattered whispers and an irrefutable feeling of constantly walking on eggshells kept the thoughts alive, and by extension, the earwig still ate. Every now and then another death would surface. The townsfolk would play it off as natural causes or a particularly gruesome homicide, but deep down, they knew the truth. 
As a kid, my friends and I were bolder with the legend. Though we didn't dare to speak of the earwig to a degree previous generations had, we played with the concept enough to put ourselves in real danger of retaliation. Strange as it was, it felt like we were carrying on a tradition. For us, the idea of playing with something so sinister felt fun. Because in our minds, we were invincible. It felt like we could touch the edge of death, but our youth and hubris would always pull us back onto safe ground. As we got older, the frequency of the story faded until eventually we'd gone years without speaking of it. I was 17, and in my last year of high school when it ultimately came up again. My friends and I were hanging out before school when we were approached by a kid named Dean Mendez. Dean always had a passion for the macabre and would tell anyone who'd listen about the creepy things he found on the internet. Usually he'd be excited to tell people about the various things he'd find, but that day he seemed... spooked. His eyes were puffy red, his hair was a tangled mess. I saw him walking towards us, and as he got close, I went to say hello, but he approached me first. I need to speak with you. Alone, Dean said, placing his hand on my shoulder a little too tightly. My immediate impulse was to tell him to let go and to take a few steps back as I was hit with an odor that no doubt resulted from skipping the shower for the past few days. Despite my initial reservations, I also got the strong sense that Dean needed help. Whatever led him to this condition was obviously pretty severe, and if he needed to talk to me about something that would help him, then so be it. I checked the time and saw that I still had quite a bit before my first period class, so I told my friends I'd catch up with them later and walked off with Dean. As we walked, I tried to ask him what was up, but he insisted that we get away from where other people could hear because he was scared they'd judge him. At this point, I'm a little concerned about my own safety. Still, I felt comfortable escaping a confrontation by evaluating the difference in our size and playing with the Swiss army knife I kept in my front pocket for self-defense. Once he felt we were far enough from prying ears, he stopped and started to cry. I messed up really bad, man. I messed up really, really bad, he said with his face buried in his hands. I tried to tell him that whatever it was, he'd be okay and that I was here for him regardless. You don't understand, he told me. I went too far. I, I went way too far. It took a minute before I could get him to calm down, and only when he stopped crying could I get him to actually explain himself. What happened? I asked. There was a pause. Dean looked around for a moment before taking a step toward me and wrapping his hands around my shoulders again. summoned the goddamn earwig, he stated. I was so curious about the legends, if they were true. For the past month, I committed myself to making sure that it was real. I, I had to see it. I needed proof. That's what curious people do, right? They investigate things. 
See if they can find the craziness in our world. And I fucking found it. But I didn't know it would be like this. For a moment I was confused. But then my mind suddenly flashed back to all the childhood stories and made up connections between the strange deaths and the weird behavior around the name. But as far as I remembered, the earwig actually killed its victims, left them nothing but a corpse filled with its children. And yet Dean looked perfectly healthy. I asked him how it was possible. If he had indeed summoned the earwig, then how was he still alive, and why was he talking to me about it? He shrugged. All Dean knew was that it wanted to speak to a few people he knew in exchange for his life. Remind them that it was still here. It gave him a list of people, and he'd been struggling with what it would mean to follow its instructions since that day, but ultimately Dean had chosen life. I wanted to be angry for what he'd done to me. I wanted to scream and tell him to go far away and never look in my direction again, but I knew it wouldn't help. I could see the fear in his eyes, and his physical condition showed a kid who clearly didn't want to be doing what he was doing, but he had no choice. For half the day, I existed in a strange stupor. All I could think about was how I'd get myself out. It wasn't until a conversation I had with my friends about how they were stressing about school that I realized I couldn't contribute to the intrusive thoughts. I needed to take my mind elsewhere. It was hell to try. I did everything possible to distract myself over the coming days, but no matter what I did, the intrusive thoughts found their way in. Drugs, music, conversations, picking up new interests, laser focusing on my other stressors, nothing mattered. Even my then-girlfriend got annoyed by how much I wanted to hear about what was on her mind instead of me speaking my own thoughts. The worst part was that I couldn't reach out to others to explain and call for help without dragging them in. Every day felt like a challenge to keep my mind preoccupied, and I dreaded the moment the night hit. Taking sleeping pills early in the evening became routine, as I couldn't risk being alone with my thoughts in the dark for any period of time. To my horror, my parents had told me they were going on a surprise honeymoon vacation and would be gone for the weekend. When I explained how much I didn't want them to leave, they were shocked teenage boy gets the house to himself all weekend and he's not stoked? Unfathomable. Finally, it was just me in the dark. It all came to a head the same Friday when I couldn't get to sleep. The sleeping pills weren't working like I had hoped and I was tossing and turning with the same questions replaying in my mind. Why him? Why me? What does it want? questions swirled in my brain. I couldn't help but visualize the thing perched on my ceiling, watching me as I struggled. Every sound in the dark was magnified. Was it coming from me? Was it coming from something else? Was it real at all? A tingling sensation shot down my spine, and I shot up in a cold sweat, staring into the void before me, waiting for the creature to lunge forward in the dark. Minutes passed as I sat there, paralyzed in fear. The darkness in my room perfectly reflected the uncertainty of my mind. It felt as though I could put my hand out 
and the odds of feeling something were equal to the odds of feeling nothing. I couldn't take it. I sprang up from my bed and made a mad dash for the light, flicking it on and seeing... Nothing. Just my room as I had left it. I breathed a massive sigh of relief and went to sit in my bed, content to stay up all night until the sun came up. I reached for my phone. The screen said 1am. I'd have to stay up quite a while, but it was worth it. I figured I'd need some coffee and slowly began to make my way to the kitchen. Walking down the hall, I turned on the light to the living room. Sitting in the wall between it and the kitchen was a massive black buck. My body felt like it was made of stone. I dared not to move as its long antenna searched the air, sensing for the slightest vibrations. I tried thinking of an excellent plan, but there weren't any good options. The two I immediately settled on were running back to my room or making a mad dash for the front door. I figured at least with the second option I wouldn't be trapped with that thing bearing down on me. A single turn of my foot sent its antenna into a frenzy. The blink of an eye, the thing was skittering down the wall and across the floor towards me. I moved toward the front door, hoping I could reach it in time, but it cut me off and shot a sticky substance at my feet. I jumped back just as I hit the ground and turned on a dime toward my room, but only got a couple of feet before I could feel something solid on my back. I was yanked backward, and from the moment I hit the ground, it became impossible to stand back up. And just like that, I was caught. The earwig slowly approached me, crawling over me as if I were pacing, trying to decide what to do. Eventually it settled on standing in front of me, clasping its mandibles together in front of my face. An eel-like tongue slithered out and licked me. But then it gave me some space. Instead of doing what it had done to so many others, it reared up onto its rear legs and revealed a hole with what looked like teeth surrounding it. A mucus-covered lumpy mass emerged slowly from the hole until it stuck out a few inches. From that mass, two small slits peeled away to reveal milky white eyes. Even though the eyes looked blind, they searched around the room before finally landing on me. Once they'd locked onto my location, an awful, wet, tearing sound followed. And just a few inches under the eyes, a mouth had now formed with long, rotten teeth protruding from the puffy gums. To my shock, the face embedded into this abominable creature was capable of speech. No need for fear today. You will not die today, not by me. It hissed in a deep, buzzy voice. I require your assistance. In return, I will no longer hunt you or your family. This is a fair deal. All I could manage to stammer out was a weak... What? The creature took a couple steps forward and the face extended out slightly to come closer to mine. Life in exchange for a surface. Easily understood, easily fulfilled. What do you want from me? 
I continued to stammer while fighting back tears. I just want to go back to bed, please. The corners of its non-existent lips slightly curled into what I think was supposed to be its version of a smile. The face slightly retracted into the hole before coming out again and speaking. You must plant my seed. I'll give you time to figure out how, but eventually you must find a way to bring my tale to the masses so they know my name. Forever. I remember thinking it was like a virus. A virus whose host is thought itself. And the number of hosts in our town dwindling, it was using me as a way of branching out. Doing what it wanted would put so many people in danger, but even so, with this satanic spawn bearing over me, the only thing I could say was... Yes. It'll be done. Seemingly satisfied, the creature's face began to retract back inside the hole, but a part of me wouldn't let it go. I shouted for it to stop, and to my surprise, it did. Why? I blurted out. Why do this? If you're intelligent, you must understand what kind of pain you cause us. Why not coexist? My question seemed to baffle the creature. For a moment, the corners of its mouth drooped low, and its eyes excreted pus from the corners before returning to a neutral expression. Why does the spider eat the fly? Why does the lion hunt the antelope? Why do the humans slaughter the pigs, the fish, each other? It's in their nature. It flashed its pseudo-smile again. Aren't our lives more important than nature? I cried out. When we kill, it's only to preserve ourselves. What you do to us is beyond that. It paused again and spit toward me before speaking. How selfish to think self-preservation is only for you. I feed to sustain myself. You shift ecosystems and make entire species go extinct to sustain vanity. Surely you understand the pain that you cause as well as I. The creature began to wrap its body around me. Dozens of sharp legs poked into my skin. The difference is, this time, you're the ones being hunted. You should be thankful I haven't decided to eat much more than my fill. I could feel the tingle of a stinger softly being pressed against my neck. I squeezed my eyes shut, preparing for a painful injection, but as soon as it had come, it was gone. I reluctantly opened my eyes, and luckily I was completely alone when I did. Not only that, but I'd gained my freedom of movement back. Still, I didn't feel free, and I most certainly didn't feel safe. The only thing I felt comfortable doing at the moment was contemplating. For the first time in a long time, I knew I wouldn't be in danger because of my thoughts, but that fear for myself was replaced with a concern for others. Little did I know that the contemplation would take years not knowing what the ethical decision was, how long I had to make it, or why I had to be one of the ones to make it, had been so hard. Some days I'd be so sure I was about to do the right thing, and others I couldn't be more uncertain. It wasn't until I started writing more seriously that I finally found my answer.
I don't consider myself a particularly good writer or a storyteller, but at the very least, I think learning how to communicate an idea is a skill you can build over time. As I've grown as a writer, so too has my abilities to communicate this message. Thinking back to my high school days, there was rarely a time when I wasn't thinking up stories, either showing them to my friends and family or posting them anonymously online. Not only that, but I'd always dreamed of getting out of the town I was in, branching out, so to speak. I think that's what the earwig saw. Someone who could communicate an idea to an audience outside of the idea's birth. And in the end... I choose to communicate the story of the earwig. My safety and the safety of those I care about are far too important to risk by not doing it. And for those who will inevitably be impacted, I'm so sorry. If there was another way to do this, I would. But before I'm judged for my actions, I at least want a chance to be understood. This decision hasn't come easy, but ultimately I believe the earwig always knew what I would do. I think it chose the people it knew would always cling to life. In that way, its spread was... It's inevitable. But the degree to which it spread doesn't have to be. I'm making my choice. I figured if I could communicate its message, why can't I communicate mine as well? Who's to say that I don't warn you now? Who's to say that I don't tell you to do everything you can to ignore the earwig? So I am. Ignore the intrusive thoughts. Find distractions. Find other interests. Find reasons to convince yourselves it's nothing more than a legend. Because if its existence is never a possibility, then neither are the consequences. And maybe together we can keep a tall tale just that. A tale. Quick thank you to all my $5 patrons and members. Absent Alice, Alice E, Amethyst, Amet, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Karen Parrott, Kat, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Myla, Nicholas Moore, Nicka Parsons, Ray Clegg, The New Ognome, 24, Tiger Princess, and Victoria Step. Thank you all for your support. Thank you.